I read a story, it wasn't that long ago, about a wife who went to her husband. It was the morning, he was reading the newspaper, and she asked a question. She said, I'll bet you probably can't guess what today is, can you? And he put down the paper and smiled and goes, I know exactly what today is. And he picked back up the paper because he had no idea what that day was. And he was afraid because he knew that his wife was extra sensitive about special occasions. So when he got to work, he called the florist thinking it must be her birthday. And so he sent a dozen roses to his wife. But then when he got to lunchtime, he thought, hey, maybe it's not her birthday. Maybe it's our anniversary. And so he skipped his lunch and he went to the jeweler and he bought her a brand new bracelet and then on the way home, he thought, this may be really bad. I'm, I may be forgetting something even bigger than this. And so he stopped and bought a big box of chocolates. When he got home, his wife met him in the driveway, and he handed her the big box of chocolates. And she just smiled and threw her arms around him. She said, this has been the greatest Groundhog's Day that I have ever had. I love that. <laughs> Asking great questions is how we arrive at great truths. That's true generally in life. If you want to know something, you ask, you investigate, you interrogate. But how much more true is that spiritually? Think about the questions that God allows to be posed, suggested through his written words. It was Job who asked the question, if a man dies, will he live again? Jesus, who asked his own apostles, who do you say that I am? Pilate, who asked in the conundrum of the, the issues with Jesus and the arrest of Jesus and the trial of Jesus, then what shall I do with this man named Jesus? Or even Paul rhetorically asking the question in Romans 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Great questions. Today we're looking at one question. It's a fundamental question, but the question is asked three times throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 is our starting place, the context of what's taking place in Acts chapter 2. The Jews are gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and there the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, begin to preach what we consider to be the very first gospel sermon. It is a message all about Jesus, the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And so, G and so Peter says in verse 32 that this Jesus who... God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here's the crux, isn't it, in verse 36. You've been waiting for the Messiah, and you just crucified him. You put to death the Son of God. The response in verse 37, which prompts the question, is this. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now go over with me to Acts chapter 9. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel in Philippi, and it is not met with great response. There are many who beat and imprisoned Paul and Silas because of this new teaching. But being in prison, we get the record in verse 25, which says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. 
and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do, do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In Acts chapter 22, final consideration. In Acts chapter 22, Paul is in Jerusalem. And he is laying his defense before his own fellow Jews. The defense of why it is he believes that Jesus is the Son of God and why he has devoted his life to the service and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he talks about the journey. The journey he was taking on the road to Damascus. It begins in verse 6 when he says, It happened as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you. To do. do you hear the question asked three different times through the book of Acts? What must I do to be saved? It's probably not a, a more fundamental and yet crucially important question that every single one of us has to answer. If you got your notes, I want you just to break down the question to begin with. I want you to break down the question with me. We'll answer the question. And then I want to provide some thoughts for, for parents and grandparents about navigating this question with our kids. Let's just start with the question. Let's break it down. At the first part, with the, with the asking of what, what must I do to be safe, it's an inquisitive question. It wasn't rhetorical. It wasn't speculative. There was a truth they wanted to understand. There was information they wanted to gain. And so it is an inquisitive question pointing to an objective truth. Must implies that there is, it's an imperative question. That is that there's an obligation, a responsibility, a requirement, a duty that is demanded of the one who asks this question. I suggest that it's a personal question. Now, this is not something that we can answer collectively. What must we do to be saved? Because I can't save you and you can't save me. We're not saved by the faith of our family. We're not saved by the collective faith of a local congregation. Every single one of us has to answer this question individually. That I must ask this honestly and openly, and I must be willing to be able to answer it on my own because we are saved, each one of us, by our own choices. Do suggest that it is a responsive question, that there is action demanded, expected, response given to the question that is asked. We know that by the grace of God, God has done everything necessary for you and I to be saved from our sins. God planned it. Jesus executed it. The Holy Spirit revealed it. And as we see in the book of Acts, it is now the responsibility for you and I to respond to it. 
There's a response, an action that is demanded to those who ask this question. 2B suggests that it's a perspective question. And so if I were to ask the question, what must I do to open a savings account? Uh, what must I do to start exercising? Uh, what must I do to learn Spanish? It implies I'm not doing any of those right now. And so to say what must I do to be saved implies I am not saved. I am currently not where it is I'm wishing to be. And then, of course, that last word is probably the most important word in this entire question because it reveals how significant this question is. It's not safe from a moment. It's not safe from a bad day. It's not safe from one particular trial. We're talking about a question that leads with eternal consequences. Saved eternally. Eternal life is at stake through the answer of this question. Can you appreciate that then on the board when you consider what's at stake when someone asks this question? We're not talking theory. We're not talking any kind of, of, of high theological speculation or lofty ideals. We're talking about a practical, eternally consequential truth. What must I do to be saved? And the reality is every single one of us, if we've not asked that question and pursued an answer to that question, every single one of us will at one day have to do so. So I want to pursue an answer to this. An answer to what must I do to be saved? And I want to start here. The, the must of salvation, it starts here. What must I know in order to be saved? What must a person know in order to be saved? There's some numbers that I think are impressive when you think about the Bible. Not just the fact that there are 66 books. Did you know that there are somewhere, somewhere upwards of 783,000 words that are in the Bible? There's over 2,500 names that are listed in the Bible and over 1,200 places that are listed in this book. And then you add on top of that some of the tough stuff. What about the Trinity? What about the pre-existence of Jesus before time? What about predestination or predetermination, if you want to define it that way? What about the work of the Holy Spirit and indwelling? What about life after death and all that is to come? There's a lot of heavy truths that are found in the Word of God. I think we can appreciate the simplicity of what Jesus said to the man freed from demons when he wanted to go with Jesus, but it says in Mark 5 and verse 19 that Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home and to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Do you notice he said, you know, I know you want to teach. I know you want to be useful. We've got to sit down and I've got to explain a lot about the church. I need to explain a lot about elderships and deacons. Ricky had 10 lessons. I've got about 20. I need you to understand. The simplicity was go home and tell them what I told you. Think about this from what we looked at in the book of Acts. When you look at Acts chapter 2 and the Jews at Pentecost, when you look at the Philippian jailer at Acts 16, when you consider Paul, Saul at that point, what did they know? In fact, we might ask the question, what did they not know? The majority of the New Testament was not written. Local congregations were still getting formed. Some of the things that we lean on in terms of the organization of the church and the worship of the church and the purpose of the church were getting understood and formed and developed and taught. So what did they know? Well, they knew Jesus. Back in Acts chapter 2. Let's do our flipping. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. They knew Jesus because in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter gets started in the sermon 
and the initiation of what this is all about with Jesus, when he says in Acts 2 and verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This man, this man proven through signs and wonders who he was. This man proficient, this man obedient to the predetermined plan, the plan God had long ago. They knew that he was the son of God. They also know if you go to Acts 16, when Paul was talking with the jailer and the jailer asked the question, what must I do to be saved? He made it very clear in Acts 16 and verse 31. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That the only way to be saved was not through their wisdom or their strength or their gifts or their good deeds, that the path to salvation was secured in one name and one name alone, and that was Jesus, that he, the Son of God, died for their sins. So that's what they knew. They knew that Jesus was the Son of God and that salvation was in him. They also knew that they had sinned. They were a people who had sinned. We read first in Acts 2 and verse 37 that when Peter said in verse 36, you just crucified the Lord, their response was, then what must we do? What must we do? In fact, in Acts 22, as Paul is going back through his story, did you catch in Acts 22, the very first thing that Jesus says to him, because the first thing Jesus says to Saul at the time is essentially this, you are sinful. I'm convicting you of what it is that you were doing, because in verse 7, he fell to the ground and a voice was speaking to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so it's not that I had a bad day or I made a bad choice. It's that I understand that I have broken the law of God. That's what sin is. I have broken God's law. I've disobeyed the Lord's commands, as all have before. I've fallen short of His glory. I've departed far from His character. And because of the choices that I have made, I am guilty of the punishment that is deserved and that is death. In Romans 6, verse 21, Paul says, What benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? What, what good came from that sinful life we were living? And what fruit were we receiving? Because I'll tell you what Paul says, the outcome of those things is death. It was death in our relationships, death in our lives, death in our hearts. Everything about it was destructive. But he says in verse 22, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does one have to know? I mean, really, when you think about the scope of all, what, what does one have to know? What must they know to be saved? Sometimes we talk a lot and we want people to know a lot because there's a lot that we think is important. But I'll tell you what they knew. They knew Jesus was the Son of God. That Jesus died for their sins. That they stood condemned before God because of their sin. And the only answer is obeying Him. That's what they knew. Well, then what must I do? And sometimes we get part of this. <laughs> the very first thing that Peter says in Acts 2 verse 38 is repent. Repent. Which is a way of saying, you can't just add Jesus to your life. I'm not adding Christianity onto my life. Kind of like I want to join the club. 
I'm enjoying YMCA. We're a Rotary Club. And so I'm going to add it on to my busy schedule. It's going to be an add-on to who I am. A complete change was necessary if you're going to pursue this path. And think about that. Think about the change. In Acts 2, they were persecuting Jesus. They had put to death Jesus. What is the change? They're now going to submit their lives totally to this Jesus. And Acts 16, what is the change? Well, before, he's a pagan guard, imprisoning men for the sake of the gospel. Then what changed? He hears the gospel, and he is full of care and compassion for the very men he had put in prison. And all you have to say is Saul became a Paul. The persecutor of the way became the most fervent bondservant of the way. A change has to take place. I think oftentimes we talk about baptism. You must be baptized. And that's true. And we're going to get there in just a minute and a half. But baptism is of no benefit if there's not first been a change. And what associates this change, and I want you to see this with me, because each of these passages, while each of them point to the fruits of repentance, in every passage, there is something that is designated. I had not seen this before. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is concluding this sermon, I want you to notice what he says specifically about Jesus. When he talks about this risen Lord who God had raised up in verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both. It's not God and God and Savior, creator and Savior. He is Lord and Christ or Lord and the chosen one, but he is Lord. He has made him the Lord, which is a way of saying if you want his salvation, you must make him your Lord. He is your master. And Acts chapter 16, when the jailer asked of Paul and Silas, what must I do? Their answer pointed to the same fundamental truth. And verse 31 of Acts 16, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, master Jesus. And Paul's question in Acts 22, when Jesus reveals that it is he, Jesus the Nazarene, how he identifies himself. I am Jesus the Nazarene you have been persecuting. Paul's response in verse 10 is, what shall I do, Lord? You notice when we put on the board from Romans 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Oftentimes, and I'm sure you've seen it before, when someone comes forward to obey the gospel, we ask the question publicly, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Is that found in Romans 10 and verse 9? Yeah, it's right in the heart of it. That you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You're, you're believing that he is the Son of God. But sometimes we miss that first phrase, don't we? If you confess with your mouth, not just that he's the Son of God, but you confess with your mouth that he is Lord. And it's not that he is a Lord. And really, it's not that he is the Lord. I'm confessing now you are my Lord. Do you see why that's significant? Because unless I am willing to confess honestly, sincerely, that Jesus is my Lord, am I going to submit to King Jesus when it gets tough? Because what if I don't like it when it comes to things like how I dress? How I engage with my boyfriend or girlfriend or significant other? About drinking? And social issues. It's no longer my will, it is the will of Lord Jesus. 
And so what must I do begins by acknowledging I'm not the king of this life anymore. It belongs to Jesus, and I'm submitting to him and each one afterwards. In Acts 2, when they heard this gospel message in verse 41, let's get there together. Let's see it in our text. In Acts 2 and verse 41. Acts 2 and verse 41, it says, So that then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added 3,000 souls. What was the response of those who heard this message and believed it and accepted it? They were baptized in obedience, not to Peter, in obedience to that Lord, Lord Jesus. And Acts 16, when Peter is, or when Paul is preaching to this Philippian jailer, He had asked the question, what must I do? And Paul's response in verse 31 is to believe in the Lord Jesus. Well, how did he demonstrate that belief? In verse 33, it says that he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. He is told, if you want to be saved, you must believe in this Lord. What was his response? I believe in this Lord enough to do what this Lord says, and I'm going to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. And even Acts 22 When Paul listens to the Lord and goes into Damascus, Ananias is awaiting him, and the question Ananias asks in Acts 22 and in verse 16 is, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What must I do? Well, I must submit and obey to Lord Jesus, to everything he says. And then maybe the greater question is, what must I continue to do? Sometimes we go to Revelation and talk about the phrase that Jesus uses with the church of Smyrna, be faithful until death, and that's a great phrase. But I love what Paul says in Colossians 3 when he says, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Did you notice from verse 1 who he's writing to? With his admonition, who it is sent to? If you have been raised with Christ, this is the expectation of what it is you're going to do going forward. The people of God are called to continue to set their mind on things above and to pursue those things. A continual life transformation. Verse 4, Christ is your life. And you will see the fruit of that as you continue all your journey until fully we are transformed into his glory when he is revealed. That's kind of the heart of Matthew 28, isn't it? He sent his apostles, and by implication, every disciple sent into the world to preach. And it's not to make Christians. It's to make disciples, lifelong learners, Lifelong imitators of Jesus. We don't have the end of the story with the Philippian jailer. I wish we did. What happened to that man? At what point did he find a local church? What did he do in that church? Was he a deacon? Was he one of the first elders? Did he teach other jailers about the gospel? Did he start singing a different song while on duty? I don't know. But you know, in Acts 2, we have the next piece. Because in Acts 2, and in verse 42, those who had obeyed that gospel, it says, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayer. They kept walking in the footsteps of King Jesus. And we have 
the blessed example of Paul, who never turned back. Every one of us have to answer this question. And again, it's not a moment. It is a question that prompts the steps of a lifetime. What must I do, continually do, to pursue this amazing gift of grace and salvation that God has offered to us? I got just a couple minutes left. I want to end with this. I know it's on our mind. It's on our hearts. My time is getting closer uh, with some of my kids, and it's been on my mind. This is such a significant question, such an important question. I think a lot of things that parents and grandparents wrestle with is, how will I know when my child is ready? I mean, how, how do I know if they're ready to answer this question and to respond to this question? I'll say at the outset a few things we need to appreciate. There's not a magic age. There's not a set age where we say when they get to a certain age and we can expect that they're going to be ready and, and, and that they're going to be prepared to answer this question. There, there, there's no age because every child is different and every situation is different. And that's something we need to appreciate. But that being said, I think there's a few thoughts I'd just like for you to consider and think about that may be helpful relating to parents and grandparents as we go forward with our children who are going to be wrestling with this very important question. And here's number one. Anticipate but don't interrogate. Anticipate that as our children get to a certain age, whether if it's fourth and fifth grade, certainly in the middle school, as information changes into logic and they begin to wrestle more with God and his word and more of less of what it says and more of what it means and more of who they are in this world and who and how they're living. That's when we can anticipate the bigger, deeper, greater questions. But we need to be really careful. And I say it with we. I'm right in the midst of this boat. That as we anticipate and by anticipation, it's not thinking I'm ready. I'm ready for any question because sometimes they don't come. Sometimes anticipation means I'm going to jump out in front and I'm going to lead our home studies in a direction that will perhaps answer questions they've been silently sitting on. And so we're going to talk more about sin and understanding what sin is. And we're going to talk about repentance at home. We're going to talk about a life of devotion to God and how obedience and baptism and confession are all but first steps of a lifelong commitment to Him. I'm going to anticipate by leading and guiding that instruction at home. But we've got to be careful we don't interrogate. Why aren't you asking this yet? Why aren't you curious yet? I've, you've not mentioned this yet. It's a good way to make sure they don't ask it. So don't interrogate them. Let it happen naturally as they consider and wrestle on their own. But also say don't compare. And this is hard to do, parents, because we do it all the time. That's what doctors are groomed to do. Here's the chart. Here's your child. Compare them with the rest of the children in this country. <laughs> It's hard not to do it, isn't it? To compare our children and our grandchildren with other children, or especially to compare one of our children with others of our own children. We can't. Because every child is different. Every child has a different heart and a different mind. And the situations of what leads them and prompts them and the development of their own hearts and minds are different. And so don't compare because, brethren, I'll say this, and you know it to be true, because I know it to be true. I need to be reminded, it's not a race. It's not a race. The last thing we want to do is push so hard for our children to make this important decision that they make it for me and not for themselves. So don't compare. But it is helpful sometimes to use other people. It's hard sometimes for us to be objective about our own family. 
it's hard sometimes for us to be objective about our own children and to see them honestly because we want the best and we believe the best for them. And so sometimes it's hard to be objective about where they really are. One of the best things can be is to use wise people around us, shepherds, Bible class teachers and preachers or wise, wise older members. And you just ask them, would you sit down with my child and ask them questions? The sad reality is sometimes our children are much more open with people other than mom and dad about things that we wish they were open with us about. But that may be a way of which we can help gauge what, what does my child truly understand about this process. Patience is so important. Because to be honest, it is, it is possible as one who has been here, a second generation Christian, I'm actually a fourth generation it's extremely possible for us to have children who are young and to give every right answer to this question and yet to not be ready for this commitment. It is possible when we ask the questions for them to give us book, chapter, and verse, but that does not mean that they're ready. That doesn't mean they're ready to do what Jesus says in Luke 9 and verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's more than just knowing the facts. It's a life commitment. That after a Sunday morning when everything is great and the Lord's Supper is served and Bible class is great and we're singing, are you going to be just as committed to this Lord Jesus when you go to school, when you go through high school, when you go to college, when you're choosing a mate, when you're in the workplace, are you going to be just as committed? Because it's not about having the right answers, it's about having the right heart. And so moms and dads, it is completely okay at times for us to use the phrase that Jesus used. In Mark chapter 12, there was a scribe who gave all the right answers. But Jesus responds to him and said that he had answered intelligently. He says, but you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're really close and you've done well. You're not far. You're not there quite yet. I don't know about you. I think just wisdom from my, from my own opinion it's wiser to be cautious and slow and patient about the process than to worry about hurting feelings along the way. Children will grow in their understanding. But this is something that they've got to get right. They've got to get. And they've got to get for themselves. Which is why the last thing I would encourage you to think about, this is one thing, I have no regrets, none at all, for the way I was raised. None at all. However, uh, I do wish this is something I had. I would encourage you, if you've not quite started this journey yet with your kids, or even if you've had and you have some who are still right there on the fringe, that you journal every step of the journey. You get a journal, and you date it. And when they start having questions, you have them write down every question in that journal. And when you study and you talk about it, you have them write it down. Today we studied this. And this is my understanding of what mom and dad said. And afterwards, these are the questions of what mom and dad talked about. The reason it's important is because there's a lot, myself including, when you get so far away from the moment, it's really hard to remember. For me, it was over 20 years ago. For some of you, it was over 40 years ago. And while there's things I remember, there's a lot I wish I could go back and see for myself. These are the questions I was asking. This is what I understood. 
These were the things that helped me along the way, and this was the point in which I was ready, and I made that decision. And we can help our children to have solid response, solid evidence, reminders as they age, as storms come, that you made this decision, and this is why you made this decision, and why you need to stick to it. Just a few thoughts. I hope they're helpful or encouraging. You all are doing a wonderful work with your children, and you inspire me and encourage me. And I hope this will just give us more things to think about and encourage as we all consider this really important question. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.